0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Today is the 150th anniversary of the birth of Mahatma Gandhi. There is a Gandhi 150, a legacy of peace event happening at the Field Museum on October 18th. And the granddaughter of Mahatma Gandhi will be there, the daughter of Nelson Mandela, and the grandson of Cesar Chavez will be there. And one of the interlocutors that night is going to be Dr. Prashad Golanopoli. He's a Gandhian scholar and managing trustee of the Gandhi King Foundation, and he's here with me now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You know, I think people sometimes forget where nonviolent protest comes from. It's something that happens all the time on the planet today. But the leaders here uh, that I just listed that are coming for the event at the Field Museum, it speaks to the power of what happened with Gandhi and what happened with the development of nonviolence as a tool. How do you think about the influence of Gandhi today?
1: I think uh, Gandhi did develop the technique of nonviolence, but at the same time he did say that truth and non-violence are as old as the hills and there is nothing new I taught this world but for many an older truth I have given a new interpretation he said so the very practice of non-violence handling issues through a non-violent technique is known to this world much before Gandhi but uh, what Gandhi did was to apply that technique on a larger scale at a social level rather than just at the individual level. Now, when we look at Gandhi, his life, his thought, and his work, in a deep way, I feel Gandhi is more relevant today than ever. Perhaps Gandhi was much ahead of his times. So, his technique of non violence, I would put it as a non offensive living. How do we understand? It is not just an abstract term, but it is something which is relevant in our day-to-day lives. How do you teach peace within yourself? To teach peace within myself, I should have a basic commitment that I would like to be very peaceful. Now, I would ask a question. Is there peace or is there nonviolence in the food we eat, in the clothes we wear, the articles we are using? That means... If I am surrounded by violence, I get thoughts of violence. So it has to be a conscious decision that my foot should be a non-violent foot. The cloths I am wearing, they should be non-violent cloths. The articles I am using, they should be non-violent. That means the life practice, my life should be based on on nonviolence, so that I can become more and more peaceful? Isn't that one of the frustrating things about life these days, though? Because we all feel like some
0: article of clothing we're wearing might have come from a bad circumstance, that uh, some food that we're eating might have been raised inhumanely. I mean,
1: we feel helpless to that. That's the reason why I said that we have to be very conscious. We have to make choices today, if we are blindly following something from somebody, like, for example, the food I am eating is not really my choice. Somebody else is making decisions. What kind of clothes I am wearing, somebody else is making decisions. So what I'm trying to say is that individuals should also assert a right to have what kind of food they should eat, what kind of clothing they must wear. Then in addition to that, there is violence in our thoughts unless we consciously bring it down. So there's violence in our thoughts, there's violence in our words, that is the language that we use sometimes is very offensive to others, and there is violence in our deeds. So violence in thoughts, violence in words, and violence in deeds. Then how do I become a peaceful person? Therefore, the conscious practice should be how do I cultivate a non-violent thought how do I cultivate a nonviolent talk or nonviolent language, nonviolent communication? And how do I make my deeds nonviolent? I think there is some
0: thinking that we're victims of the system. And all these things that are problems in our lives, whether it's uh, our shoes or our meat or something, we're victims of the system, and we've just got to fight the system. We shouldn't be victimizing ourselves about that. We shouldn't be
1: blaming ourselves. We should just go out there and fight the system. I agree with that because I don't want to be blown off by the system. That's what is happening. So at the same time, I should be conscious and I should work. Like spreading these ideas so that we will influence the system. We will insist that the system should be more peaceful or it should be oriented towards non violence. And if I can give you some examples, like when we talk about agriculture, you put a seed, it germinates. It's a beautiful life process. In a beautiful life process called agriculture or a crop, how do you bring death? Insecticide is death, pesticide is death a chemical fertilizer that doesn't contain life, how can it support a living thing like a crop? Is it not a conceptual contradiction? In fact, we don't apply our thoughts. We accept whatever is coming. So here what I'm trying to drive is a life-based development, not death-based development. So what I mean is when you talk about crop, the animals, the animal-based manure will be enriching the soil, it's a golden manure. So, there are many techniques which can be applied with both using the animals for the agriculture kind of things without much use of the chemicals. So, when we are eating the food, are we eating the nectar or are we eating the poison? If the food contains more of poison, this is what Gandhi did speak about, then naturally you get thoughts of negative thoughts you get, not positive thoughts. So therefore, I link the food, the clothing, the articles on the one side, then your thoughts, words, and deeds both have to be with uh, conscious orientation cultivate a life of nonviolence. I'm talking with Dr. Prasad Golanopoli, and
0: he's a Gandhian scholar and managing trustee of the Gandhi King Foundation. He'll be in town on October 18th for Gandhi 150, A Legacy of Peace, the events happening at the Field Museum, and features uh, the descendants of Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Cesar Chavez. Uh, when do we get to have you know mass action where we take down these systems i mean
1: after we if we get ourselves right can we do that yes i am very confident about that and when uh, radios like this they are getting into the picture taking this kind of message on a massive scale people come to know then that gives an opportunity for them to introspect and in this mad world the mad rush People have no time to think about themselves. And when they have heard concepts like this, perhaps this is what makes them to stop, look, and proceed. So that's where I do look forward for a change coming at the individual level, and when more and more individuals look to this kind of an approach, it becomes a mass movement. And as I travel within the United States, I do come across number of people, number of groups which believe in this kind of patterns of nonviolent living. You
0: know, when I think of the climate activist Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old girl, she internalized her change. She doesn't fly. She doesn't eat meat. She's a vegan. Uh, She went and then started a school strike for children, and it spread all over. She's living her principles. She's taking her message to people all over
1: the world now. In fact, that is the kind of models we need. And as an elderly person, if I have not realized in my life, what is my responsibility, I should not shy away from learning from so that young kids, they teach us, they tell us what is our responsibility that we had been falling short of. So I am admiring her. And uh, I think she is coming to the United States, not by flying, but by <laughs> sea route. So it's a great model living by example. I know that you are
0: someone who is involved in the Nobel uh, Laureate Summit that takes place uh, occasionally, and it um, just took place in Mexico. What What is something like that like?
1: Well, I participated in the Nobel Peace Summit, which has taken place in Merida, Mexico from 19th to 22nd, and I had the privilege and honor to do a workshop on nonviolence Uh, in concept and application. There it was a beautiful experience to meet with uh, the Nobel Peace Laureates and other fellow uh, attendees in the uh, summit. And uh, these uh, people, all the Nobel Peace Laureates, they discuss the current situation in the world. And at the end of it, they come out with a declaration. Now, this meeting or this summit is also attended by a lot of youth from around the world scientists, uh, then state leaders, policy makers, industrialists, they all come to this kind of summits. And when they take to the kind of uh, message that we should be using more nonviolent techniques for resolving our conflicts, so it will be a powerful message. So it is like this is an answer to your question, how do we make it uh, very broad-based where a lot of masses take to nonviolence. So this uh, Nobel Peace Summit is perhaps one of the fine examples of uh, nonviolence being taken at a global level and also massive level.
0: Why do you think we have so much authoritarianism kind of running rampant in the world today? Um, There's efforts to kind of counterbalance that. I know that in Istanbul, there was a race for mayor and the winning candidate used radical peace and love as his theory uh, of his main campaign platform. He wouldn't talk ill of his opponent and he won his race. If uh, Nobel laureates, if politicians came out and and just started campaigning on radical peace and love, is that a way to fight back against, you know, you're from India and India, there's a Effort to practically disenfranchise millions of people in Assam and make them non-citizens of the country. I mean, that seems like something that's
1: against peace and love. If you want peace and love, you should stand up for it. Yes, there is an element in people that uh, I am right. I am more right than you. And uh, can I feel that I may be to a small extent wrong perhaps or maybe you are some 10%, maybe you are right, where I accommodate you and your feelings, then there is a mutuality. There is a give and take approach. And then there is a collaboration. But when people become autocratic, authoritarian, so I am right and I would like to foist my will on you. That is a dictatorial tendencies and the world had seen that kind of things. So this is um, a trend that comes now and then, or it surfaces now and then. But then we should also have mechanisms on a constant basis that such kind of uh, authoritarianism doesn't rise and that they do not take to power. When the authoritarian attitudes, people of that nature, take to power, they would create a different kind of societies and they would like to impose things. So I normally say that we take bath every day. Why do we do that? Because this body generates impurities regularly. And you give a wash. Similarly, the society also is generating impurities. One of the impurities is what we are talking about. Corruption is an impurity. Environmental degradation or pollution is an impurity. Divisions in society, impurity seeing some people as untouchables or slaves is another impurity. So unless we give a wash or a bath to the society on a regular basis so that all these impurities are purged, we will not have a good society. Therefore, the Nobel Peace Laureates, not only just promoting peace, I do agree with you that we need to assert ourselves. All the peace-loving people they should assert, and peace should be an agenda, even for fighting political elections. Otherwise, what is happening today, you, if you are keeping out of the game or out of the fray, selfish people are taking over the powers. And I do claim that in this world, good people are in the majority. We are in the majority. But we are scattered. We are not organized. Whereas selfish people are very small in number, but they're organized. Organized in political parties, organized in governments, organized in corporations. So they decide how to look to us, how to treat us. Sometimes they brush us aside as if we are non-relevant at all. Therefore, uh, your point is very powerful for me, that noble peace lords who, who already got that kind of a recognition in their lives, the whole world recognize them. Use that recognition, that power to change not just the social level or economic level, but even at the political level. That is, the political power also should be hand of those people who love peace, who work for peace, who work for equality. Do you think that there is a
0: way that we could create more foot soldiers
1: for peace? Uh, I think absolutely, yes, it is possible. But now, for your question, I would like to turn to education, uh, the schools, the colleges, universities. And when I look back in my own younger years in India, if I take the Indian context, we had uh, handcrafts, music, dance, moral classes, and things like that. That is, they make you a more a humane person. But gradually, all those good elements like music, dance, things like that were removed, and they say, study science, mathematics, become a doctor, become an engineer. You may become an engineer, you may become a doctor, but will you become a good human being? So what we should do to make more and more foot soldiers of peace, I would emphasize on the need to bring in this kind of a transformation at the school, college, university levels, where we should say not only you are studying for your career, for getting into a job, but you are also learning here to make yourself a good human being and also create a good society. So that kind of a foundation is extremely necessary, and we should build it in a very conscious way.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Prashad Golanopoli. He's a Gandhian scholar and managing trustee of the Gandhi King Foundation. And he'll be in town for Gandhi 150, A Legacy of Peace. The event's happening at the Field Museum on October 18th. And it features the granddaughter of Mahatma Gandhi, the daughter of Nelson Mandela, and the grandson of Cesar Chavez. And if you're interested in more information, you can find it at idsusa.org. The event is being put on by the India Development Service, and the website for more information is idsusa.org. Um, what do people get out of an evening like that? You're part of the Gandhi King Foundation. You, you know what these things are about.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, we are uh, in a way promoting these things in a humble way. Uh, we start with Stanford University, where we are launching Gandhi King Global Initiative. And here, one word about Gandhi and King. While Gandhi did talk about uh, non violence, peace, and the truthful means, uh, sacred ends and sacred means, things like that, it is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who has uh, taken it forward. I would say King is an extension of Gandhi, and Gandhi is incomplete without King. So, When I say Gandhi and King, for me, I think of Mandela, Caesar, Chavez, Jesus Christ, the Buddha, the Mahavira, and all the peace traditions in the world, which did talk about a peaceful coexistence of all human beings, the human beings and the subhuman world, and also the environment. Virtually every religion did talk about it. So it is this legacy, how do we carry forward? And for this purpose, Gandhi-King Global Initiative is started at Stanford University. Now, we are doing a Gandhi-King conference on 11th, 12th, 13th of October at Stanford. And this has broadly three components. One is the legacy part itself, what peace means to us and how do we understand from different peace traditions. The second is how do we take it forward and place it before the young generation because ultimately the future lies with the youth. So how do we sensitize the youth? How do they understand peace? And how do they decide to work for peace? That is the second component. And the third component is networking. As I said earlier, there are many people who are uh, working for peace but in isolated way they are doing now they should get connected. So the third aspect of the conference is building a network, worldwide network of peace organizations and also individuals. So it is in that context, after Stanford, we'll be doing a program here in Chicago on uh, 18th. Then on 19th and 20th, we'll do a program in uh, Dallas. And on the 21st, we'll do a program in um, Florida. So like there are three places after the uh, Stanford conference Similarly, we had done a program in South Africa in the month of June. South Africa is a place where Mohan Gandhi got transformed into a Mahatma Gandhi. Well, it should be a fantastic evening.
0: Gandhi 150, A Legacy of Peace, the granddaughter of Mahatma Gandhi, the daughter of Nelson Mandela, grandson of Cesar Chavez, and uh, Dr. Prashad Golanopoli will be there, Gandhian scholar and managing trustee of the Gandhi King Foundation. You can get more information at the India Development Service website. It is idsusa.org. I'll be there. Worldview is a co-sponsor of the event, and uh, we'll be looking forward to it. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have an expansive discussion of the interlocking crises of our times with Naomi Klein. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Naomi Klein is in town. The author of This Changes Everything in the Shock Doctrine has a new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. It was a bestseller the first week out of the gate. Naomi keeps herself busy as a senior correspondent for the Intercept and as Gloria Steinem Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. You can see Naomi Klein tonight at the Music Box Theater. She's in conversation with 33rd Ward Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez. Nice to see you, Naomi Klein.
2: Great to see you again, Jerome. I wanted
0: to. You wrote this book uh, because you wanted to have a more expansive discussion of the interlocking crises of our time. I wonder if we could have a go at that because I think we are looking at so many issues with democracy, with immigration, with um, storms, with uh, climate. Um, how do you? why why? Why should we begin packaging this more and talking about them together?
2: Well, I think we should. We should look at. It more holistically in this way and understanding our time as one of interlocking and overlapping crises. So I called the book On Fire because of the sort of obvious reason that the world is on fire. We've turned the temperature up in ways that are disrupting um, planetary systems and that is manifesting in many forms, including an increase in the intensity of wildfires also the intensity of storms, also the intensity of droughts, um, but that's not the only kind of fire we face. We also fa- face political fires. We, we also are in a time of surging hate, surging white supremacy, surging income inequality, um, and, and a sort of empathy crisis where where we are, we, we have these political figures in the United States, but not just in the United States. Uh, around the world, we're seeing the rise of these strongmen figures who, like Trump, are very adept at sort of defining an in group, a protected in group um, that is sort of cast as superior to the out groups, both within their respective countries, and also on the borders, the invaders, the security threats, and so on. And, you know, I'm making the argument in the book that um, these fires are interrelated, that I think there is, whether or not people deny the reality of climate change or not, I think there is an awareness out there that we have entered a time of mass human migration. And there are a couple of ways to respond to that. You could either um, respond to that with solidarity, um, with a sort of expansive humanism. You could respond to that with justice by recognizing that we in the wealthy world created the crisis of climate change for the most part. And the people who did the least to, to, to create it are on the front lines. Or you can respond by kind of locking down and hoarding and protecting your own. And in the book, I call that climate barbarism. So those are the kind of two interlocking fires that I think are really feeding each other, because the more divided and distracted we are, the easier it is for the Trumps and the Bolsonaro's and the Modi's of the world to go and pursue an extremely environmentally disruptive um, extractivist agenda.
0: One of the things we just saw was the climate strike and this was a coming together of different – and it was a call to come together with different uh, movements to be together and to make a change for the world they want to see – this is something that's been happening on a, on a smaller scale here. Here in Illinois, people from different sectors come together to pass an energy bill. It's 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 happening all over the place. People are unsiloing their movements, as you say, and mm-hmm. and trying to trying to do a together thing.
2: Yeah, you know, and this is the third fire. You know, I argue that we live in a time of three fires. We've got the climate fires. We've got these fires of hate. But we also have these movement fires that are really the antithesis of that divide and conquer strategy. And we, I think we see it most movingly in the youth climate strike movement, which is a global movement of young people uh, really not concerned at all uh, about international borders. It's young people standing up for each other's right to a safe future wherever they live. And we just saw the world's the, the largest climate mobilization in the history uh, of the, the planet uh, over the past couple of weeks, S- an estimated seven million people participated in the climate strikes on two successive Fridays. Um, and this is different. You know, I've been part of the climate movement for a long time. I've been on the board of 350.org for over a decade and there have been these huge mobilizations. But there's something different that's happening now. It's more widespread. It's more kind of spontaneous, which means that it's, you know, these aren't marches that it takes a year to organize with buses and, you know, massive amounts of money to mobilize people. We had 600,000 people out on the streets of Montreal last Friday, and this was just called a couple of months earlier with, and you didn't have any organizations pouring huge amounts of money into that. It was just tapping into a sense of urgency out there um, that I think comes from people having firsthand experience with climate disruption, um, finally getting the message that we are just plain out of time. You know, we've spent a few decades kicking the you know, can down the road, and now we've run out of road, and the cl- climate scientists have made that clear. But I also think there's a greater sense of possibility about what it might mean to rise to our historical moment, that, that maybe in responding to the crisis of climate disruption, we actually have an opportunity to build a much fairer economy and society on multiple fronts and close those systemic gaps um, that follow racial fault lines um, so closely and gender fault lines as well.
0: Along the lines you're talking about the, about the metamorphosis of the climate movement, you've been involved with the divestment movement for a long time, and uh, the divestment movement is aimed at banks and institutions and universities that would would disinvest from fossil fuels. Uh, there's a more expansive idea about what divestment could be, um, and you know, the Sunrise Movement makes uh, makes client, makes candidates, uh, presidential candidates, say, I will not take fossil fuel money. That's a form of divestment. You've been talking about media institutions and uh, getting out of the fossil fuel money. There is, yeah. there is ways that the government can get out of more fossil fuel things.
2: Which so. is really consequential, right? Because I think that we have – you know, this is an industry – with tremendous political power because it is awfully profitable to dig up fossil fuels and burn them, um, and this fact has created a whole lot of not just climate pollution, but pollution in our political system and pollution in our media ecosystem. This is what allowed misinformation to be spread through this network of of think tanks funded by fossil fuel companies for for many many years. And so, in the fossil fuel divestment movement, which is about seven years. Old now we you know kicked it off on a national level from three fifty building on work that students were doing targeting coal specifically and we just expanded it to all fossil fuels it was really it was modeled off of the most famous divestment campaign which was the anti-apartheid divestment campaign but also um, the the divestment of tobacco stocks and the idea there was really about Creating a moral crisis around these companies where you're saying, okay, there's something inherent in your business model that is immoral. With the tobacco companies, it's obvious. You're selling a product that kills people. With fossil fuel companies, you're selling a product that you know, we now know that Exxon was doing research in the 70s and 80s off of its oil tankers where it was – you know, had internal memos and was publishing in peer reviewed journals that showed that it knew climate change was happening. It it modified its own oil rigs to adapt to it. And yet it was one of the oil companies that was underwriting All of this cloud of misinformation, buying full-page ads in the New York Times, um, saying, you know, the science isn't clear and so on. And we lost decades. Um, And also funding political campaigns. That is also why we lost decades. So when we create a moral crisis for these companies, and that's what the fossil fuel uh, divestment movement has done, then you're in a position to say – to 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 um, politicians, you can't take money from from these bad actors, and that's what the Sunrise Movement has been doing. And they've gotten a lot of politicians to to Democratic politicians to sign this pledge, and it's it's a really big change in a short time. What
0: does a media um, divestment look like in your mind?
2: Well, look, I would love to see that because we don't see tobacco ads on television anymore. There used to be tobacco ads on television, and that that you know that, that there was a moral crisis that was created around why the institutions that we turn to to get reliable information, why they would cut from, you know, the news to just straight up misinformation about tobacco. And, you know, as somebody who's been trying to, um, you know, get, broadcast media to cover climate change more extensively for a long time it's pretty frustrating when you know that the oil companies get a huge amount more airtime than you know whatever little bit of uh, you know a few minutes that we might be able to get on one of the cable networks and then they you know cut to you know an Exxon ad or a shell ad so I think you know this is the next battle is I, I you know I think we should create a moral crisis where these companies shouldn't shouldn't run these ads for the same reasons that they don't run tobacco ads and there has been some progress where, you know, the New York Times for many years has been uh, uh, the major media sponsor for this big oil and gas uh, um, conference every year. And this year they pulled out of it because it's becoming morally untenable to have these business relationships with this sector. And this is going to create the space we need to talk about the real policies that will um, you know, get emissions down.
0: I'm talking with Naomi Klein. She is in town and will be at the Music Box Theater tonight in conversation with 33rd Ward Alderman Rossana Rodriguez. And her new book is On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. It was a bestseller the first week out of the gate. Um, You know, just to uh, keep going on the the divestment thing, I think it's – so it's so interesting to apply this. You could apply it anywhere with cities. I mean, do cities should they take a, if an oil company wants to build a new park in the middle of downtown? And I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you should not take that money. Maybe there you know things we should not do anymore.
2: Yeah, and there are cities that have announced that they're divesting their pensions. I mean, the city of New York and and San Francisco both announced that they were suing um, the you know the the top. I think the top five or maybe the top seven oil companies for climate damages, because these are coastal cities on the front lines of climate disruption. And this is all part of the pressure that's been created by these grassroots movements. But yeah, I mean, look, I I do think that we need to create a moral crisis because the business model of these companies um, is at war with a stable future, a stable climate, because it's just structural. If you are an oil company, you need to have something that's called the reserve... You need to have a um, 100% reserve replacement ratio. And what that means is that you have to be able to tell your investors that you have as much in reserve, and that's like oil and gas that you have laid claim to, but you have not yet um, started exploiting as you have in production. So you have to constantly... uh, um, have this promise that you are going to continue your exact same growth rate or increase it and you know from a from an investor perspective that's fine and good you want to know that the company that you're invested in is going to you know keep being in business in in a healthy way you know into the future but if you are a regular person not invested in these companies what you need is what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us, which is we need to cut global emissions in half in a mere 11 years. And we absolutely cannot do that unless we start winding down existing fossil fuel projects. We absolutely cannot expand the fossil fuel frontier. So we just have a clash between these companies' business models and what we need to safeguard a habitable planet.
0: And so you quote someone in the book about um, governments cannot extend... Um, oil drilling in, in infinitely offshore, off uh, in the Arctic. Uh, there are people drooling to get into the Arctic now, and, and that's got to stop.
2: Absolutely, and I think it's significant that some of the front runners in the in in the race to lead the Democratic Party have been very very. Clear that one of their first acts as president would be to no to, to to offer no new fossil fuel leases on public lands. That's something that you can do, you know, um, at an executive level. It's it it's pretty easy to do, um, and that's the kind of pledge that we need.
0: I'm talking with Naomi Klein. Her new book is "On Fire: The Burning Case for a Green New Deal." Um, and this is um, the argument for uh, a Green New Deal. Essentially, is to get out of the siloing business and get into the um, collaboration business and working together business, uh, and and it's um, something that is happening on a small scale. I was talking about the latest Illinois energy bill recently, and they they're doing job training and putting low-income people into solar jobs uh, in Illinois, and this this kind of thing that the Green New Deal. Uh, proposes is is uh, already happening.
2: Well, it is happening. And, uh, you know, at, at smaller scales, we know that you create many times more jobs when you invest in renewables, energy efficiency, public transit than when you put those dollars in oil and gas. Um, the difference with a sort of federal Green New Deal uh, is that it really is a vision for the next economy modeled after FDR's original New Deal, um, which was a, a sweeping transformation of the economy of the kind that we have been told by the intergovernmental panel on climate change we need when they released this now famous report a year ago saying we needed to cut emissions in half in 12 years, now 11, um, they said that this would require um, unprecedented transformation. This is a quote, unprecedented transformation in every aspect of society. And then they went on to list, you know, energy, transportation, housing, construction, um, agriculture. So if we're going to change everything, um, why wouldn't we seize that opportunity to address the other systemic crises that we face. We know we face a crisis of economic inequality. We know we face a crisis of of racial inequality and certainly Chicago, you know, is on the front lines of this crisis. So if we're going to build new green housing, why wouldn't we build that housing in beautiful ways and accessible ways to make sure that low-income African Americans have access to that housing? If we're going to change from fossil fuels to renewable energy why wouldn't we also have energy democracy why wouldn't we have community ownership over that renewable energy and make sure that the communities that have had the dirtiest projects in their backyards like mountains of pet coke for instance to give a chicago example Why wouldn't they be first in line to own and control their own renewable energy projects, keep the jobs and skills in their communities, and have this be a kind of energy reparations? And that's the kind of thing that gets people out of our silos, right? Because we have tended to think about our responses to, to the climate crisis in very narrow technocratic ways. We just need a carbon tax. We can have cap and trade. It's just about the carbon. And you know, we do need a price on carbon. It needs to be designed in a way that is progressive so that the people who are the biggest polluters and who are most responsible pay the most and the people who did the least and are least able to absorb new costs get more back in rebates. But I think if we just think about this as a as a, as a price on carbon, as a tax of some kind, the truth is that we have so much injustice in our society, we have so much inequality, that, I, that climate action is understandably seen as some yet one more thing that is adding stress to already overstressed and overburdened working people. And they understandably reject that. And there's a really strong lesson to be learned from what has happened in France over the past year.
0: The yellow vests?
2: The yellow vests, the gilets jaunes, where, where Emmanuel Macron, um, who has been a very um, neoliberal president, um, who has attacked trade union rights, has opposed brutal economic austerity, has handed out tax breaks to corporations and millionaires, much as Donald Trump has, and, um, does all of this and then he says oh and we're also going to do something about climate change it's going to take the form of a tax on 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 gas which regular people are going to pay at the pump and lo and behold you have a massive backlash um and to me and 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 it's so it's so intense and we've all seen the images of the huge riots across france that emmanuel macron actually has to roll it back and back off Um, so you end up you know, discrediting the whole idea of climate action. It's seen as this um, sort of luxury item. The slogan of the Yellow Vest movement was, um, you care about the end of the world, we care about the end of the month. And I think the sort of de facto slogan of the Green New Deal movement is everybody has the right to care about both. Nobody should have to choose between caring about the end of the world and the end of the month. We can lower emissions in line with science while creating millions of unionized jobs and battling injustice on every front.
0: Uh, it, sounds, it sounds like the key is you have to have a plan about how to go about this. And there has been some thinking and people give Jay Inslee a lot of credit for what happened in Washington with this. And uh, you've been Taking part in uh, something, the Leap Manifesto and the Leap Project in Canada, that which is doing uh, thinking ahead and thinking of a just plan to put in place here.
2: Yeah, and we've also been working with the Labor Party in the UK and different different parties in Europe and Australia. Um, you know, this is in the air, and this is not a new idea. This is a product of the environmental justice movement um, led by frontline communities um, in this country, many of the members of, of the Climate Justice Alliance. Um, it also comes from the global south, from countries like Nigeria and Ecuador, who have been on the front lines of environmental devastation from foreign oil companies and who have been demanding um, climate reparations, the the costs that it would take for them to protect their rainforests, in the case of Ecuador, um, leave oil in the ground, but also pull themselves out of poverty, um, leapfrog to green energy. You know, when I wrote This Changes Everything, uh, which came out in 2014, I started it with a quote from a Bolivian um, climate negotiator named Angelico Navarro who gave a speech exactly a decade ago at the United Nations calling for a Marshall Plan for planet Earth, which is another word for a Green New Deal. It's, It's a response to climate change that puts economic justice at the center, um, racial justice justice at the center, um, and really reparations at the center. Uh, so the difference is simply that there's now a cohort of Politicians in this country at the federal level um, who are who are taking these ideas seriously. You mentioned Jay Inslee. Um, You know, this started, of course, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and visiting the Sunrise Movement's occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office where they were demanding a Green New Deal. Um, You know, it really started with this with the squad deciding to support this demand that has been coming for so long from frontline um, communities and now with this youth led Sunrise Movement
0: um the you know there's um uh, some price to pay here, and I noticed old Justin Trudeau up at the climate march in uh in Canada and he took part and he said, you know we're going to do it, but you know we've got to do it with you know some of this oil revenue that we're getting we're gonna we're going help we're is is there a is there a truth to that or is that um is that weird. I, I noticed somebody uh, made a satirical comment that he was going to name one of his uh, pipelines that he just bought after Greta Thunberg, but uh, the, he's, he's uh,
2: how... Uh, I mean, the truth is that it is such a mockery of the science to claim that you are a climate leader and march with the young climate marchers, while at the same time your government, and this is true of Justin Trudeau, um, has paid $4 billion to buy a distressed oil pipeline, distressed because there was so much opposition from indigenous people in the path of the pipeline that the American company, Kinder Morgan, got cold feet and, and pulled out. And Justin Trudeau stepped in and said, no, we will buy it and expand, the tri- triple the capacity of this tar sands pipeline. And now he wants to, you know, his party has been you know, grandstanding about getting a resolution passed that declares a climate emergency and so on. It just doesn't add up. And unfortunately... People see it so clearly that his poll numbers are collapsing, particularly among young people. I think it is down 10% in a week. They're calling it the Greta effect um, because of this, the rank hypocrisy of the whole thing. And I'm just hoping that this doesn't lead to, you know, an even worse government coming into power in a couple of weeks because we have federal elections coming up. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, that's the, 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 that seems to be the trick here, is finding...
2: We need better choices, later. but the truth is is that we may end up in a better position, which would have a, a coalition of the Greens and, and our third party, the NDP, and the Liberals, and then they would have to actually be more responsive to the public than when anyone has a majority.
0: I'm talking with Naomi Klein about her new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, and Naomi is at the Music Box Theater tonight at 7 in conversation with 33rd Ward Alderman. Rosana Rodriguez, I wanted to say a, a few things about the kind of scary things you talk about. If, if this doesn't work out, if um, we don't, if the Green New Deal kind of backfires in a bad way, you get um, something um, like ecofascism. Can you explain what ecofascism is?
2: Sure. Um, so you know, I think for a long time <clears throat> people have been people who care about climate change have been very focused on, you know, what do we do to convince the deniers, right? Um, And all of the social science looking at who denies climate change finds a really tight correlation between people who have um, what's called a hierarchical worldview. Okay. So people who um, tend to be comfortable with intense levels of inequality because they have a worldview that tells them that if some people have a whole lot of money and most people have very little money, um, it's because those people who have a lot of money are just better, smarter. Um, they're the you know the true champions, and so on. And the people who. Um, our suffering are probably lesser than something wrong. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's racial. It depends on you know. But the people, but there is a very very tight and direct correlation between this hierarchical worldview and denying the science of climate change. And you know, I have said for a long time that when people say, "Well, how are we going to convince the deniers?" I have said, "You know what? Don't worry about them." Um, there's so many people who don't deny the science, but just feel hopeless about it. Think we're doomed. Um, not sure they're not sure it's going to affect them. Let's focus on those people. And part of the reason why I think it's I think we're wasting our time with the deniers is that the only thing more dangerous than somebody with that intensely hierarchical and in many cases just overtly racist worldview, um, the only thing more dangerous than those folks denying the reality of climate change is those folks no longer denying the reality of climate change. Because when the science, when it becomes undeniable, they don't just flip a switch and start saying, okay, I guess we have to sign on to the Paris Accords and you know pay into the UN Climate Fund and do our part to lower emissions. What they say is we need to fortress our borders, Um We need to let them drown in in the Mediterranean. We need to look after our own because we're better and screw them. And we're starting to see this. I mean, first of all, we're seeing more and more borders just look like this. But now we're starting to see self-described eco-fascists going into, for instance, two mosques in Christchurch, um, New Zealand, on March 15th. That shooter who took the lives of more than 50 people at prayer in his manifesto, he he described himself as an ethno-nationalist, eco-fascist. He, he said, um, you know, immigrants were destroying the environment in white-dominated countries. Then a few months later, somebody who said he was inspired by that shooter went into a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, um, and said that the reason why he was going into this Walmart that was frequented by Mexicans was that... He knew that Americans were not going to change their way of life. Um, and because of climate change and other environmental crises, well, he was just going to take it upon himself to make sure Mexicans didn't adopt the American way of life. So that's ecofascism. And, you know, we are at a real fork in the roads now where I think climate change is becoming impossible to deny. And I think in a few years now, climate change denial is not really going to be a thing. The real thing is going to be people who have this very, very hierarchical, oftentimes overtly white supremacist worldview who say it's real, and that's why we are going to be so violent.
0: Naomi Klein is in town, and she is the author of This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, and her new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. It was a bestseller, First Week Out of the Gate. You can see her at the Music Box Theater tonight. She is in conversation with 33rd Ward Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez, the Democratic Socialist from the 33rd Ward. Uh, Great to see you, and uh, good luck in the future. And it's been great talking with you.
2: Such a pleasure and privilege, as always, Drew.
0: Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk with a bunch of people who have produced the program over the years, and we'll have a um, good, fun reflection with them, and we'll talk about uh, some of the fun things we've done during the show. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
2: We can.